0: Hello, guys. Welcome to another episode of the Deck Arts Podcast. Ria Murray is here today. She is a master's candidate at the Parsons Cooper Hewitt program, and we are going to be talking about Hector Guimard's stylistic innovations in standardized design. When Ria was telling me about this topic, I was like, why does his name sound so familiar? And then I realized I knew him from the Paris Metro Designs, and Castel-Beranger, <laughs> there's a replica of a metro stop at the National Portrait Gallery Sculpture Garden in D.C. So it's really cool to see in person because you really get a feel for the presence of the entrances to the metro and um, the, like, the effect they would have had on the Parisians. So Rio, uh, what class did you do this research for and why did you pick this topic?
1: So I, last fall, which was my first semester in the program, I took a 20th and 21st century drawings class. Uh, And the reason I took the class, I usually am more interested in 19th and very early 20th century stuff, uh, was because the teacher was Dr. Gail Davidson, who I knew used to be the head curator of drawings and prints at the Cooper Hewitt. So I thought, oh, like, obviously I have to take a class with this woman. She must know everything there is to know about this. And so um, when we started the class, like, our big project was select an object from the collection, and she took us up to Drawings and Prints, and the curators pulled out all these pieces that sort of needed further research for whatever reason. They, like, weren't properly cataloged, or they were new acquisitions, Um, and they laid them all out on this table for us, and it was just intoxicating, I mean, there were so many cool options. There were architectural drawings, there were garden plans, there were like, studies for textiles, and and there was this really cool, like, 3D-printed vase program. It was, it was wow. just really neat. And so I saw this Hector Guimar architectural plan, and I thought, oh, I love Guimar, like, let me choose this. I have some kind of familiarity with him, because I love Art Nouveau. And I thought I knew what I was getting into, because, like you, like, the Paris Metro entrances are such an iconic... Design. I mean, everybody knows them. It's sort of very well associated with Paris in my head, and um, I thought this would kind of be a nice way to start out. And I was so surprised by what I find, found out from doing the research into this, into these drawings. Um, so basically, um, in the nineteen forties. The early 1940s, Imar was actually in New York City, which is crazy because he's so associated with Paris and France in general, uh, but he actually married an American, and she was Jewish. Uh, her name was Adeline Oppenheim, and she was a painter, and like many American painters at the end of the 19th century, she was in Paris studying and painting, submitting things to the world's fairs, and at some point during this, they you know made contact with each other and got married. And so in the late 1930s, things were getting a little rough, (laughs) to say the least, in Europe. And they fled. They fled Paris to the United States, and they settled in New York City. And he unfortunately died just, I think, about four years later. Uh, And she had all of his papers and all of his letters and drawings and everything they managed to bring with them when they left Europe, which was pretty unusual. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of the Bauhaus designers fled around the same time, and many of them lost, like, their entire archives. Um, So she worked really closely with the Cooper Hewitt and uh, the New York Public Library, and she donated his entire archive of drawings to our museum, and then a lot of her papers are in the public library. So it was pretty interesting yeah. and random. And I know she actually tried... To, she went to Paris and tried to donate things to the French museums. And at the time, like, Art Nouveau was not in at all. And people were just not interested in acquiring these things. So we're really so lucky, but I guess, yeah. that the Europeans rejected him somehow. And, and the Cooper Hewitt ended up with everything. Yeah, that's crazy. I didn't,
0: I didn't realize how extensive it was. And Ria sent me her paper and... It's
1: Hundreds and hundreds of things. I mean, yeah. drawings, and then there are all these photographs documenting things. They have his business cards and letterhead, and wow. yeah, it's 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 extensive. And there's blueprints. It, it was a lot of fun to look through everything. I have to say, you could spend hours. And I think I, I can send you a link that we can sort of put in, in this on the website maybe so people can get a look because describing it verbally will give you almost nothing. It's it's so intense how detailed he got into some of these plans for things. Yeah,
0: um, and she actually wrote um, an object of the day on this topic as well so I can post that and that has some great pictures on it too yeah. that'll kind of help you while we go forward. Because it's... if you're not familiar with Art Nouveau,
1: um, do you want to describe sort of yeah. like Victor Horde? Yeah, so, so, Guimar is really associated with, with high Art Nouveau style, which is, is kind of sort of stylized nature, you can say, um, a lot of people describe it as whiplash curves, sort of sinuous lines, and kind of light design, um, It's often described as a Rococo revival style, which Mm. makes sense, kind of frilly, you know what I mean? It has this sort of frivolous kind of association to it. Um, And so Guimard started designing in in the 1890s, the early 1890s. He went to school in Paris. He was born in Lyon, I think, which is in northeastern France. Um, And he came to Paris and he went to the École des Beaux-Arts for a little bit. And interestingly, he did not graduate, which I love. <laughs> nice little detail. He went to college and he transferred around, I think, to two different schools, and then he left without a diploma to work at a construction company. And then a few years later, he founded his own architectural firm, and he started designing these houses for people. Um, there were these two private houses in, in a very like up-and-coming Parisian suburb uh, in western Paris, and. They're very odd buildings. They're, they're they're pretty eclectic, you can say. Um, they kind of incorporate different elements on the outside. They're not symmetrical at all. They're random like turrets, and certain parts have ceramic tiles on them, and others are brick, and they're, they're idiosyncratic, I guess you can say. Um, and he sort of was feeling out his style, I think, and then in the mid-1890s and 1895, he took a trip to Belgium and he was in Brussels and he met Victor Horta there, who is like the father of, of Art Nouveau. And he had just completed the Hotel Tassel, which is in Brussels, which is one of the iconic Art Nouveau buildings. And Guimar met him and they kind of spoke and corresponded quite a bit on this trip. Uh, and that building is really a great example of Art Nouveau. There's these sort of soaring, uh, cast iron, glass-enclosed stairwells with these beautiful vine-like, it's, it's, it's really, and it's total design, so the floor tiles, the wallpaper, the metal elements, I mean, every piece of it was sort of designed to create this unified, really curvaceous um, building. Does someone still live there? I think it's sort of like a landmarked building now. I, I don't know if anyone lives there, actually. That's an interesting question, but I know you can go visit it when you go to Brussels, um, but I don't know if you can actually go into any rooms. And funnily, all the pictures that you see of it are usually of, like, the stairwell and the entryway, but you don't ever get to really see any other parts of the building, at least in my sort of cursory research. Um, but Guimar was so affected by this. And Henry Velde was another Belgian who's one of these very early Art Nouveau designers, and he was doing work at the same time, so he was exposed to all of this when he was there. And thought, you know, oh, modern architecture is so boring. I think he has this great quote that um, he describes it as being the cold receptacle of past styles, which is such a diss. (laughs) And so he thought, oh, you know, these Belgians, they really know what they're up to. And so when he got back to Paris, he had a commission before he left to design an apartment building for this elderly woman. And he somehow convinced her to let him completely change the plan. And, like, you can find the early architectural drawings that he submitted to Paris, it's in their records, and it's absolutely nothing like what he came up with in the end, which is this really high-end Art Nouveau apartment building, which is the Castel Beranger. Um, And this is yet another wacky design by him. It is not symmetrical at all, it's like two apartment buildings around a central courtyard. And it's nine stories high, and every single level of the apartment is different. I mean, the floor plans are different. Each individual apartment on each individual floor has a different layout. And he designed everything from, you know, the doorknobs and the house numbers and the gutters to the furniture that was inside of the apartments. And, you know, there are stained glass windows in some of the stairwells, and he did those wow. windows. I mean, he was meticulous. Um and so this building is considered one of these iconic Art Nouveau buildings, um, and and so he it, it made him famous. I mean, it took about I think five years for them to build it. So by the time it was finished, it was 1899, I believe, right before the Exposition Universelle, mm-hmm. which is like the Art Nouveau World's Fair. Um, and he had a lot of popularity from how successful this building was. He won a prize for the facade, some you know gold medal prize, which is actually inscribed on the outside of the building. Um, and so this is the kind of architecture that he really became associated with. And he won the commission to design the Paris Metro entrances based on the success of this building. They actually had a contest for who would design this. They were just finishing up the, the metro underground, and they said, oh, we need some big person to sort of have their name attached to this. So they put it out there, and some other architect actually won the competition. But the guy who was in charge of, of the Sayempe, which was their, sort of their like underground transportation network, was like, uh, I think we should get Hector Guimara. Have you seen that building that he just put up? It's amazing. Like, obviously, he's the guy for the job. And so he sort of, you know scuttled his way in there a little nepotism but it worked out in his favor (laughs) um so this is like my idea of Hector Guimard is it's like the metro entrances and the Castel Beranger and you know you see sometimes these like balcony railings that he designed a little bit later in the 1900s um these beautiful cast iron things which are sort of sinuous curving lines and they look sort of like plant stems abstracted plant stems um and I think that's really what everyone sort of associates him with is this whiplash curve. And in the course of looking at these drawings, I, I found out that that was really just sort of the beginning of what he was up to. And it was, it was a pretty exciting discovery for me. Um, it's definitely an oddball. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but what was interesting was that, you know, I had thought, you know, the cast iron was so typical of his work. And it was, but it sort of led into this other era of his design because they were actually cast as sort of standardized components. And so um, while well, I had thought, oh, you know, he made everything for like an individual commission or something like that, he was actually from a pretty early point, I think almost as early as 1907, mm-hmm. um, he started experimenting with you know modular standardized design. And it started really, I think, with the Paris Metro entrances, because he had to do so many of them in such a short period of time. I think they really wanted to get them out like while the exposition was still going on. Uh, so he was commissioned to start them in 1899, and I think he had them up and running within like six months of the fair opening. So that's pretty fast mm-hmm. to put up that many metro entrances, and there were a few different types. There was, you know, one that was just an open stairway with the the metro entrance over top, which is I think what they have at the at the DC Gardens. Um, there's one that's sort of a roofed opening with like all this glass painting over top, which sort of protects you from the rain. And then there was a third one, which is like a full pavilion a station with a waiting room and all this. Um, And so to make this go faster, he actually designed everything as modular components. So they could all be constructed from the same elements, just some of them had more than others. Uh, So he took that idea and he really believed in the potential of cast iron, which was considered before this to kind of be an industrial material. Like it wasn't really used in domestic settings very much. And he started working with the foundry in, in Paris, the Fonderie de Saint-Dizier, uh, to produce standardized cast iron pieces for other architects to use in their commissions. Um, and so you can actually find this book in some libraries around. I think the public library has it here in the city. Um, and somebody has them digitized online. But it's really interesting to look through and see how many different pieces he was producing for people just to have you know, in their homes, things from like brackets where you could hang a sign from to house numbers to nail heads. There are literally Hector Guimard designed nail heads that you could buy for all of your needs. I, it's just a bizarre and strange and extremely small detail to pay that much attention to, but he he was clearly obsessed with the details.
0: Yeah. Um, Was it successful within the industry?
1: It it was not, sadly. Uh, And apparently he really sort of financially hurt himself by doing this. It probably took a lot of money to invest in producing these molds for all these different designs. Uh, But as far as I could find, he was the only person who used these elements at all, which is tragic. Yeah. Yeah, and and he used them a lot, admittedly. After the 1900 World's Fair, he was commissioned to do a number of apartment buildings in Paris. And a lot of them are still standing today, and they still have their Hector Guimard original cast-iron balcony railings uh, on the façades, which is pretty exciting. Um, And you can see there, if you flip through the book, if you can find it online... Uh, there are so many different variations on that one sort of horizontal balcony railing, and you can find them all over Paris, which is pretty cool. And some of them have been acquired by museums. Like the Cooper Hewitt has a balcony railing that I think came from an apartment building that he did in around 1910, which was sort of like a model apartment building almost. Like he used so many of the different balcony railings in that one design.
0: Do they have that out in the – because I feel like there's a cast iron It is out section. right now,
1: yeah. So if you're – it's like the – it's all of the Hewitt Sisters Collect section yeah. on the second floor. There's a room right now which is full of cast iron, and they have, like, really cool medieval stuff. Uh, they have some Louis Sullivan pieces, but I think they also have the, the Guimar Balcony railing up there, which is pretty yeah. awesome. Yeah, so if you're in New York City, you yeah. can actually go and check it out. It's definitely worth seeing. Like, the metro entrances, like, these things were meant to be experienced in person, you know, as part of your surroundings. It was his full intention. And it wasn't just one piece. It was like you were surrounded in a complete Hector Guimar, cast iron, you know, carved wood. Crest Cement environment. I mean, every bit of it was there. So it's definitely worth seeing it in person.
0: Yeah. So then, is it after he does this um, cast iron publication Mm -hmm. that he then starts on those, the different style buildings? When do those come So,
1: yeah. So Art Nouveau, the height of Art Nouveau was really around 1900. and, And even after the World's Fair, within a few years, it sort of starts fading in popularity. And so he was really trying to brand himself differently from this whole Steel Nouveau that was going on at the time and that was then being disparaged by people as it sort of faded away. So he started referring to his stuff as the Steel Guimar instead of the Steel Nouveau because he really did not want that association. Like if it was going to be unfashionable, it wasn't going to be his work. Um so, you know, around 1910 or so, there starts to be kind of a shift in the buildings. Like, you look at the Castel Béranger with this wacky facade where every section is a different material, mm-hmm. or the windows are, you know, articulated in a different material than the doors or the facade. And um, they start to become a little bit more refined. Like, there's still ornament, but it's calmer and it's just in concrete and brick as opposed to all these different elements. and You know, they're simpler colors with just the cast iron elements as sort of the decorative bit. Um, And so he's progressing more and more towards this refined style as you get towards the 1910 and a little bit later. And around 1913, he's commissioned to do a synagogue, actually, in Paris, uh, and he uses concrete in that synagogue for really, I think it's one of the first times he uses that material, which is, again, one of these new industrial materials that's sort of poo-pooed by all the fine artists of the day. But it's an affordable material, and it's incredibly easy to use. And, and so, of course, you know, why wouldn't you? Uh, and unfortunately, you know, right after he makes this gorgeous synagogue, which is still standing today, and you can go see it in Paris, I think it's on the Rue Pave. Um, so you know, within a year of this happening, World War I hits, and all construction in France sort of grinds to a halt. They're a little preoccupied uh, with what's going on in northern France, which um really was quite destructive um I think a lot of the the land in northern France alone was lost and That particular area was an incredibly important economic region for France, unfortunately for them. Um, Alsace-Lorraine is there, which is a hotly contested region for like hundreds and hundreds of years. Germany and France have been feuding over this region, uh, particularly because it has deposits of minerals that can very easily make you a ton of money. Um, But there were also... Other areas that were important for shipping purposes and agricultural reasons and all of that was sort of tied up in trench warfare and, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of homes are destroyed during this whole battle. You know, many, many years of destruction. Uh, Public buildings are lost. You know, millions of people are wounded and everything is just kind of destroyed. Yeah. And throughout all of this, not only is the land itself getting destroyed and the people are getting wounded, but those who are left in that region are like, I need to get out of here. So they're all fleeing to the safest place to be at the time, which is Paris. And, you know, partly because it's far enough away from the army, but also because anyone who didn't have a job, you know, the only thing you could really do at that time was work in the war industry. And so they went there and Paris was not prepared at all to deal with a huge influx of people. And so they had a bit of a housing crisis there. It was, like, a lot of high-density, you know, a lot of people living in not a lot of space, and there was nothing new being built to accommodate this huge influx of people. So um, it was really a huge problem. And, you know, Paris, even today, is still—housing its is a difficult problem there, I guess you can (laughs) say, and affordable housing especially— um, and, you know, it had been that way even before World War One, but it was just intensified so much by this particular uh, influx of people and, and, and all the destruction. So a lot of the architects at the time were sort of trying to wrestle with this, like how can we help these people? And nothing was being done. They had no money and they had no, no industry in order to make this happen during the war. But after it ended, um, a lot of these sort of groups popped up. Uh, that were led by some of these visionary people of the time. Um, Franz Jordan is a big one. Uh, He actually was involved in a few of these different groups. Uh, One of them was the Société de Nouveau-Paris, which was founded even before the war. Um, And, you know, he wanted people to focus on the everyday people, less on, you know, the elite and their beautiful chateaus and things like that, and more on, you know, where the everyman was living, um, there was another one called the Societe Francaise de Logement Hygiénique à Bon Marché, uh, which helped get public, you know, governmental support for a lot of these housing projects to be built. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the first ones that they built actually also utilized reinforced concrete, which was pretty revolutionary for the time. Yeah, it is. Especially that early in the 1900s. I mean, when we think about concrete construction, we think about Le Corbusier and, you know, 1925 and onwards and, you know, the Villa Savoy. And, oh, he was so revolutionary to do that, but people were doing it before him, just maybe not as popularly. Yeah, now I feel like he kind of ripped off all of these people (laughs) he brought yeah I think he I think he did I mean and that's the thing I find so interesting about Art Nouveau is it's really it's really not popular these days because everyone's so into modern and Bauhaus and all of this but even from doing this project it was like no like standardized construction didn't start with them it started here in you know the turn of the century with people like Guimar I mean It may not look like it's standardized design, it still has that sort of frilly kind of handmade look to it, but it was actually all being made, you know, to take advantage of industry and and to make things cheaply and quickly and in massive amounts so that you could get it out there like as quickly as possible, which is not really what I thought of as Art Nouveau.
0: No, and it's interesting too because there are the more like modern designers who say, like, simplistic, like mass housing. Yeah. They make it look like mass housing, but this doesn't look like it. No, It not looks at like
1: all.
0: it has been customized, which I think is kind of nice. Yeah. And that he was making these cement apartment buildings, but still each one was individualized. Right, right, right. I think that's really sort of a neat yeah. aspect to how they sort of differentiate between
1: what they were probably thinking. Right, right. So he, he, his first, like, so after World War One he, along with all these other people, he was part of one of, another one of France Jourdain's groups, which was the group des architectes modernes. Um, and one of the first projects that he did for them was a series of these three rural houses. And it literally says on the drawings, like, houses for devastated regions. So it's obviously meant for these rural areas in, in northern France, where um, mm-hmm. where people just had nowhere to live anymore, you know their houses were completely leveled, or by bombs, or trench warfare, or whatever it was, or just like sheer destruction of war. Um, and it's not really clear whether any of these actually were built or not. Um, and all three of them are also in the collection of the museum, which is pretty fun to find because they were not linked to the original three, the original drawing that I had pulled out. Um, But the drawings have, you know, they have a few views of the facade. They have a few views of the floor plans. And they're single family houses. And they're clearly quite small. uh, But they have everything that, you know, a single family would need in a rural region. And uh, there's a handwritten note on the actual plan. And it says that the factory will forge the following elements ready to be laid. Floorboards, frames, stairs, doors, shutters, carpentry and woodwork, stove, sink water closet and septic tank pipes for water and gas and electricity and then there's another little note further on the bottom that says that it would be made in wood so this is a little bit different than the concrete mm-hmm. buildings but i think it was partly to sort of fit in with the vernacular architecture of that area like they may be using concrete in paris but they surely were not using concrete in rural northern france yeah. um so that's probably part of the reason why that was there and it's not really clear whether any of these were actually built or not. Um, there's no records in, in his archives, at least that I could find. Uh, but it's interesting, at least, to know that he was thinking about the rural areas because a lot of people were really focusing on the cities at this time, and he did too eventually. Um, and like one of the one of the biggest sort of, or you know, he eventually starts thinking about Paris um and everyone was thinking about paris and how could we sort of more appropriately use the space that we have here for all the people that are here now and one of the bigger plans that people know about to deal with this is le corbusier at in the 1925 world's fair he in his pavilion had a whole display on urban housing and he had this whole plan to like completely level the right bank of paris and just build this whole new complex with these like very very tall buildings that were sort of mixed use for like offices and spaces like that. And then there was a whole series of lower buildings that were modular, standardized housing units for people. And like it is a great idea, but you know they're not going to raise the entire right bank of Paris <laughs> so you can rebuild the city to be this super modern looking geometric arrangement. You know in 1925, yeah. like they're not going to get behind that idea at all. So obviously that didn't happen. Um, but, you know, you could come across a plot of land here and there, and, and people did build buildings that were, you know, more appropriate uses of space that gave more housing to people who could not necessarily afford, you know, an hôtel particulier of their own. Um, and so these drawings that I ended up working on the paper for, um, either in between 1920 and, like, 1922, Guimar comes up with, eight distinct houses that are actually dual family houses um and they're very interesting little things i mean they're split directly down the middle um by a very thick dividing wall and on either side of the wall they're sort of mirror images of each other and this is the same for like all eight of the houses they're all constructed in this way where it's like a mirrored half Um, And they're nothing like what I expected to find, uh, with a Guimard building. Um, they, especially having seen the Castel Beranger floor plans and seeing each floor and like looking at them on top of the other and seeing all these different wall layouts. These are so perfectly symmetrical. It's, it's bizarre. And, um, they were, you know, meant to utilize space for as many people as possible, And to do it as cheaply as possible and to build it as quickly as possible. And so, you know, I started with the floor plans and I went into the the museum's website and the collection and I started looking at all the different Geymar drawings. And I noticed, you know, we've got a couple hundred Geymar drawings. Okay. I start, you know, scrolling through them and we have the floor plans of some of the other buildings. We have drawings for certain individual houses that he built for clearly very wealthy people, these little castles sort of all over the place. Um, which are absolutely gorgeous, uh but then, from this particular set, we've got I think about a couple hundred drawings that are all related to various elements that would then go into this floor plan, like we've got drawings for how to construct the bricks, we have drawings for how to you know put the walls together, we have construction drawings for. How to actually mold the concrete, how to lay out the bricks in the facade in the pattern that he thought was most appropriate for for the facade, and they're numbered. I mean, they're even lettered and given letters and numbers for for the blocks themselves. I mean, we've got plans for you know, each of the doors, the exterior doors versus the interior doors, the windows themselves, the chimneys, the fireplaces. I mean, he, just like the Castel-Beranger, his beautiful Art Nouveau building, where he designed every single element, most of which were incredibly gorgeous Art Nouveau elements, here he's doing the same thing, but it's for a different goal. So it's it's not necessarily aesthetically the most you know, top-of-the-line home you could possibly get, but he's still lavishing that same attention to detail on it. It's just with a different goal, which was really exciting for me to see yeah. um, someone kind of apply that for the good of, of mankind, you know? Yeah. It's like, this is actually very much needed then, and it's still needed today. You sort of think, oh, God, maybe someone could sort of pull these up and make them work somewhere else in this country. Yeah,
0: they would kind of remind me of the Sears robot houses that yeah. they did, and sort of the same, I mean, these are much more detailed, and he obviously spent more time crafting mm-hmm. what the house should look like, but they do have that same sort of appearance of someone could build this right. and wouldn't be
1: slowed down. No. You would know exactly what to do, how to set it up. Yes. Yeah. It was, yeah, like prefab. It was, mm-hmm. it wasn't exactly quite there yet. Just I think industry had not yet reached that yeah. point. Uh, but I mean, it was only, you know, a few decades later that that was happening. And so is kind of the progenitor of that at, in 1920 you know yeah. <laughs> not really not really what people associate with prefab housing but there's another notation on one of the drawings which i just i think is fantastic um there's a drawing for one of the facades it, it says it's the drawing for the facade facing the street um and again like the drawings for the rural houses there's a little handwritten note on the bottom and this one says The general provision for the construction of the facade to be executed in standard concrete blocks has been adopted to permit, according to the regional differences, an execution in ordinary bricks or in bricks and stones. The system permits the assembly of this masonry without requiring the taking of any measurements and will not require any cleanup after assembly. That's crazy. I just love that. I mean, he's really trying to make this as easy as possible and to adapt it. You know, for regional specificity, for for certain areas in the country where you know maybe brick might be appropriate here, or wood's appropriate there, or concrete could be just fine somewhere else. Um, it's just it's yeah. nowhere near what I ever thought I would find out about. <coughs>
0: and I think it's interesting because we learn about him, and we just like really briefly brushed over him.
1: Yeah,
0: but I think this is more interesting than him just following
1: the Art Nouveau. I mean, yeah. this is sort of when he comes into his own, I feel like. Yeah. Whether, what's sad is that we don't even know if he successfully came into his own, but I think in terms of his ideas and the application of these you know, new technical achievements that are possible, Like if someone would have just given him the time of day and allowed him to construct this somewhere, given him the finances to do so... You know, maybe our entire idea of him would be different. Like when you read about Gimar in textbooks, you read that like, yeah, he was so you know great in the Art Nouveau period, but like after 1910, you don't hear about him really at all. Especially not after World War One. And he was clearly still working. You know, he was designing homes for people. He you know designed apartment buildings throughout the 20s and the early 30s, uh, but no one really talks about it because they're all sort of fixating on what came next: Art mm-hmm. Deco and. Le well, Corbusier and modern architecture and the international style and Gropius and the Bauhaus and all this. You know, by the time Guimar is doing this, the Bauhaus is already founded and they're starting to sort of kick things into gear. So it's all happening at the same time. It's just yeah. the style is different. It's not that spare, you know, international style. It's still got these hints of Art Nouveau or, you know, local regional styles or just sort of French plastic surfaces. Yeah. Um, which is it's crazy. And so, you know, I really wanted to find out, like, did any of these buildings actually come to fruition? Do any of these plants, you know, result in a, in a building? And in the process of researching the drawings, I found that the museum has, like, a whole series of photographs for the construction of a building out of this whole modular dry concrete brick. And so... Um, I was trying to figure out, what is this building? Like, it's so, it's it's not identified in any way. Their catalog is like, you know, photographs for the building of a mass operational house, which is the same way that those drawings were described. And so I tried to figure out, you know, from looking at catalog raisonnés of his architecture, like, what, what is this building? Where is it now, and where was it then? And I found out that it's actually a small house on a small square in Paris, um, and it's not a mass operational house. It's actually just like a single family sort of, you know, slim building, almost like a brownstone style construction. And um, it was made with this style of, of, of sort of, I guess, construction, <laughs> to use the same word again, um, where he was using this dry brick technique that he had developed for these mass operational houses. But obviously this was a single family house. So I'm not sure what the deal is with it. I mean, was it kind of like a model house that he was using this technique to show people that it was a viable option, that, you know, this is a great way to construct a building and, like, if you see how well I've done it here, maybe we'll get to build our our nice houses for people who have nowhere else to live because the war destroyed everything <laughs> they ever had. Um, I, I wish I could find one that actually was made for people other than, you know, in this one in Paris, but... not convinced that it ever happened uh and then the only other thing i found was that uh actually at the 1925 world's fair he um he and a few of the other architects in this group des architect modern uh put together a, a model french village um Another one of these things that the world, that particular world's fair that like nobody talks about because there were so many things happening at that world's fair. Yeah. Uh, but he constructed a, a like a town hall sort of a building, and from from the images that I was able to find of it, it looks like it's again the same concrete block construction. So he was still working on it even five years later. You know, for the 1925 World's Fair, he was still thinking about this and hoping maybe wow. that somebody might notice (laughs) and nobody did which is i think quite sad yeah
0: missed opportunity kind of
1: i think so i think so so um
0: when he came to the states did he continue to draw
1: or did he sort of i think he had stopped by that point i think the last record that i found was he didn't he did an apartment building in like the 30s in paris the early 30s And then that, as far as I know, is like the last thing he really worked on. I mean, he was born in like the late 1860s. So by 1938, he was not, you know, he's no spring chicken at that (laughs) point. Um, And, uh, you know, maybe the Parisian lifestyle caught up with him at that point. Uh, But no, he he just came here and and I think he was, he, he won a few awards in Paris before then and he did, like, a monument to some, some war victory and then mm. came to the States and sort of was here in obscurity, I think, for quite some time, and then he passed away. Yeah, that's sad. I think it's really quite tragic, <laughs> especially because, like, you know, there were so many other artists and architects coming here at that time, you know, fleeing the same thing. And so many of them seem to have been sort of welcomed into these expat communities and nurtured and upheld, and I'm not sure if that happened to him or not. It doesn't really seem like it did. Which is not really not really great for poor Hector. But he's getting well, his he's getting it now. He's getting yeah. his attention now.
0: <laughs> yeah. Now everyone can go see all his stuff and will know what he does. It's yeah. nice that they have all? Because they have all the drawings digitized? Yes, yes. And they've
1: added, I think, even more since I did this project in the beginning. There are yeah. some other buildings now I was looking the other day that I did not see around, on the first round because they're still digitizing things, which is pretty amazing. They've got, you know, thousands and thousands. And Drawings and Prints has, like, the biggest collection in the museum. There's just so much, so much material. And a lot of them are these archives that were given to us by, you know, artists' estates, and they're such, like, minuscule little pieces of paper in there that hold so much interesting information yeah. that, you know, as time goes on, more and more stuff is going to be, you know, coming out of the woodwork.
0: Yeah, so are they on... Were you able... So you were able to see the original in person. Yes. Was it
1: on trace paper? The... No, it was on, like, this thick sort of yellowish paper. So they were they were clearly, like, very well-articulated Yeah. Drawings. Like, these were, like, the final ones. They were probably... You need to be presented to somebody mm. um, there were none that I saw of like the really like thinking out the details because you know there must have been hundreds and hundreds of those drawings Yeah, but I think partly you know it's because his wife or his widow was really curating this down like she knew what legacy she wanted him to have uh, and I think she was really actively selecting these very nice finished drawings and the curators themselves might have been involved in that too at the time um, yeah I mean, she donated them in the early 1950s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's all highly, highly finished, like perfect, crisp, you know, ink lines that are drawn like to absolute specification. Yeah, um, notes and everything. Yeah, and little notes. Everything is like perfectly level and straight. And I mean, they're beautiful. They're incredibly beautiful drawings. Um, you know, even just the bricks themselves look so great. Uh, and they're very clear too. I mean, they're easily readable. I I minored in French, and so I thought, "Oh, this is going to be so easy for me to figure out what I'm looking at." But it was quite hard, I have to say. Yeah. Like architectural terms in French were not really in my standard of vocabulary no. at that point. And so and also, like I'm a deck arts person, so architecture is really outside of my wheelhouse to begin with. And so uh, I had to really learn a lot. And I was struck by how easy he made it for me because everything was so clearly labeled and, like, clearly, legibly written. And it was like, oh, thank God this man was so meticulous. Yeah, really. it was incredible. It was incredible. I mean, you can even look at them without speaking French and sort of get an idea of what is going on and what you're looking at. Yeah, that's nice that he so carefully noted, I mean like every detail of yes. this one page has like a little handwritten a little handwritten notation next yeah, to it. Yeah. That's really cool.
0: Um I did one of my French teachers. I took like a 2 week French intensive this summer. Oh gosh. And I know. I had to pass that language exam uh, so I felt like I should try to learn how to speak it. Yeah. And um someone was we pulled up an old clip from an old movie where they show some like famous hotel in Paris that Edith Piaf yeah. Yeah, had, like, been at with all these writers. I don't know. And she was just showing us, and she was saying, oh, it might be hard for, like, you to understand because they speak so different than mm-hmm. we do now in Paris and yeah. France. Yeah. And I was like, that's so interesting that the language has changed, changed change. yeah. 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 Which you can kind of see in, like, English, but... She said it was really
1: noticeable in yeah. French, yeah.
0: Which I thought is cool, because it probably shows up in his notes. Probably, yeah. Notes compared to architects today and France. Right, and seeing how they might do it differently, although yeah. they
1: probably all do it on a computer now. Oh, true. It's <laughs> so sad. Yeah. <laughs> I wish more people drew. That's, that's definitely uh, something that's being lost in architecture today, I think. Yeah, yeah, because you definitely
0: learn how to do it, but then I'm sure you kind of forget yeah. once if you don't keep up
1: with it. Right, right. And it's like they're they're even having, I think they're having pro, not problems, but it creates an interesting sort of issue in terms of museums. You know, like, you can get a Mies van der Rohe drawing, or a Le Corbusier drawing, or a Gropius drawing, and they're really interesting and great to look at, but, you know, how are you going to get a, modern architects, if they don't do that, you know, what's going to enter a museum collection in 20 years for people to study based on that? Like, you can't just look at their digitized you know cad floor plans or whatever like that's not accessible to the everyday person so having drawings like these are, are it's it's incredibly educational and interesting to learn how and why people were doing what they were doing for these homes and i hope that that will still be accessible for
0: modern architects i know I'm sure there's some out there. who Yeah, do.
1: there are. Like, I like one of the ways we started Gail Davidson's class was we were talking about Michael Graves, who oh, uh, I love him. Yeah, and he was like a huge proponent of drawing, and he also taught architecture. And he was like very adamant about the fact that like you have to incorporate drawing into your practice because it's one of the ways that you change the the plan as you're going is being able to do things like lay the tracing paper over this section and that section and see what works better together and what doesn't. Uh, to adapt that, and that it's not quite the same doing that on a computer.
0: Yeah,
1: you know, I agree. it's it's the it's the same thing as being able to see that metro station in person. Like, yeah, you have to have some engagement with like the materiality of of what you're doing. Yeah, uh, at least I think so. Yeah, <laughs> maybe we're old fashioned. I don't know. Yeah, well, <laughs> I guess we are. Yeah, it's fine.
0: It's okay. <laughs> um. So, is there anything that you found? Well, a lot of what you did was super interesting because yeah. no one really knew about this collection. But was there anything that surprised you, or like, were you ever going through the anything and then you're like, "Wow, that's so weird, I didn't know
1: that." I, there, were, I think there I mean there were a, a few, definitely <laughs> a few. Um, I mean, one of them was just like simply knowing that those cast iron balcony panels were not made like one, you know, for one building. Yeah. Um, cause I had, I had sort of worked with them before. Um, I had seen a few of them through my job and, uh, oh, yeah. do
0: you want to explain what you do? Yeah.
1: Oh yeah. So, so I have some experience with Art Nouveau because I, I work at a gallery that specializes in that era of design and decorative arts. Uh, it's the Lillian Nassau LLC. Uh, and they specialize in Tiffany Studios lamps and glass, uh, which is quite lovely. <laughs> I have to say I'm very spoiled. Um, And so, obviously, that's the American side of things, and now that's really almost exclusively what we do, but when the gallery started in, like, the 40s and 50s, Mrs. Nassau was a specialist in, like, all turn-of-the-century design, and she was a huge lover of of Art Nouveau and Art Deco, and so um, had really, like, she had accumulated an extensive library with all these incredible old, you know, books, you know, periodicals and things, so I'd sort of seen Gimar here and there. Um, we didn't necessarily have that much of his work while I was there, but we did eventually get some of these balcony panels. And I just like loved them. I mean, they're so incredibly beautiful. The detail on such a simple, you know, piece of construction element. Um, I just thought they were really lovely, and had no real idea that there were so many ways that they had been used or could have been used or intended to be used. Yeah. Um, and so in the course of doing this research and finding out that there was a whole catalog of balcony railings that he had made was really eye-opening because I had thought, oh, you know, this was a one-off, and it was the opposite of a one-off. <laughs> it was like, and and I, I think it, it almost made me like it more and like him more um, because it, it just made me realize that he was thinking so much so much on the larger scale than I had been expecting for a style that I thought was really a much more, like, intimately scaled thing. Um, So that was really really eye-opening. And also just finding out that he was still working in the 20s and 30s because, you know, as far as I knew, like, he did Art Nouveau, and that was it. Mm -hmm. Because you really don't learn about any of the other stuff that he was doing, and maybe it's because it wasn't built, or maybe it's just because people didn't really... It didn't really fit inside that nice, neatly, you know, Hector Guimard Art Nouveau package. Um, it was a bit sort of. It, it doesn't synchronize as well with his earlier stuff in terms yeah. of look, but I think in terms of approach, it's all it's all very like linear. Like he's clearly thinking about how his buildings are actually going to be used by people. Like that's why every floor of the Castel Branger is different because everyone uses their homes differently in that particular time and space. Like. Whereas, you know, these modular houses were meant for a completely different use. And so mm-hmm. they're constructed for that goal. And I loved that. I love finding out that he was so adaptable.
0: Yeah. It's unexpected. Yeah. If you only know him based on argument. Yeah. Right. right. Um, well, thank you so much for this amazing podcast. That thank was a great. You. I hope yeah. I didn't talk to him. No. Oh, my gosh. That was amazing. <laughs> this is amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was awesome.